The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There is an island that is part of Japan called Okunoshima. And it is uh, up until recently been um, deserted since World War II. In World War II, the island was um, used to test mustard gas. They would uh, use it to, they had these factories there and these laboratories and tests. And during World War II, they would produce that uh, kind of chemical warfare and they would test it. And after World War II, it was decommissioned, deconstructed, and the island was abandoned. And it wasn't until decades later that people returned to that island and discovered that there was one particular animal that had overrun the entire island. That it just kind of taken over that island. And so now it's become, it's become kind of a tourist destination for people to come and see it just teeming with this one particular island. And I wanted to show you a video clip of what this looks like. But before I do that, I've just got to warn you, I mean, it's terrifying, okay? So I'm just not sure that you're ready for this, these ferocious animals, okay? I... I, I just, it's going to terrify you. Are you guys ready? Because you don't look ready. You think you can handle this? Okay, you're not sure, but um, okay, check out this clip. Yeah, everyone needs a good bunny video every now and then. So um, that's right, the island had become overrun with rabbits. And the reason, they, they don't really know for sure where these rabbits came from. There's a couple theories. One is that, um, that an elementary school had a bunch of rabbits that they were using as pets and things. And then they had turned them loose there back in the 70s. And it had grown into this colony. Another um, potential possibility is that the uh, factory there back in World War II that was doing tests on mustard gas, they had actually used rabbits for those testing and that they had said that they had taken all the uh, rabbits off the island. Maybe they missed a few. Either way, the island is overrun with rabbits. It's nicknamed Rabbit Island. And people come from all over to, to see these wild rabbits that'll come right up to you and let you feed them. Now, here's the thing about rabbits. Anytime you, you have seen a, a rabbit in the wild, or at least anytime I've ever seen a wild rabbit, it's a flash. It's running away and running to its little burrow and trying to hide because that's really its only defense mechanism. 
the only way that an, a rabbit can avoid a predator, I mean, it doesn't have like huge talons, okay? The only thing it can do is run away. Well, in, on this island, there are no other animals. So there has been generations of rabbits. And with rabbits, I mean, we could be in like into the thousands of generations at this point that have all lived without any enemies. There have been no predators. And so because of that, these rabbits have flourished because there are no enemies. So we're talking in this series about what we're calling the series Overflow. We're talking about how to flourish, how to thrive, how to experience the fullness of life. And there's one thing that seems to just undercut the overflow, undercut flourishing more than anything else. That's the presence of enemies in our lives. There's almost nothing else that has more of an impact on stealing our joy. When there's a, an enemy that has hurt us, oppressed us, betrayed us, and we are waiting for justice. When, we're, when it seems like there's this justice vacuum, it just seems like it draws out all of our joy and all of the, the life, the liveliness and thriving of our life. And so how do we fight that battle when there's this absence, it feels like this absence of justice, when it feels like there's enemies are surrounding us? How, what do we do? How do we handle that particular situation? And the passage that we're looking at addresses that with some powerful truths. There's some truths that are underlying this issue that if we could just understand these truths and activate them in our lives, it would change everything regarding the enemies in our lives. I want you to open uh, in your Bible or your Bible app to Zechariah. We've been going through the book of Zechariah. Open to Zechariah chapter 1, and I want you to hold your place at verse 18. Zechariah 1 verse 18. Uh, let me give you the context of what's going on here. The... Um, the people of Israel this is, have returned back to Jerusalem. This is a little bit more than 500 years before the time of Jesus. 500 years before Jesus. They have returned to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is in ruins. The Babylonians had come through about 70 years earlier, had just destroyed Jerusalem, broken down the walls, broken down their homes, destroyed the temple, dragged those people back to Babylon. And those people were exiles there away from their homes. Eventually now they've come back. They've started rebuilding their homes. And God has called them to start rebuilding his temple. And eventually he will call them to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. But here's what we find in the opening of Zechariah. They are calling out for justice. And there's these... This first vision he has is of these patrols that are sim symbolic that have gone over all, around all of the earth, these patrols, and they see that the earth is at rest. Everyone is at ease. And that sounds like it would be a good thing. It's actually not a good thing. Here's why. Let me just hold your place at verse 18, but let me go back and read verse 15 to you and remind you of what God said. He said, I am and I am exceedingly angry with, with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. 
In other words, what we talked about briefly last week, one of the most painful things in life, one of the most painful things in life is when someone has hurt us or oppressed us and yet we're picking up the broken pieces and it seems like their life is at ease. They're at rest and that they may even be thriving. And it makes us feel like, God, why am I hurting and putting the, bringing together the broken pieces and that enemy, that person who's hurt me so much, perpetrated so much uh, bad things against me, victimized me, why is that person at ease, at rest, thriving? Everything's going fine for them, but that's not the case for me. And what we hear from this passage in Zechariah 1 is God says, I am not okay with that scenario. Here's what he says. Here's the second vision that Zechariah has. Look at um, chapter 1, verse 18. And I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. All right, now we have to continue going, um, but I want to pause here for a second and just describe this first vision because it's a very interesting picture. Zechariah is having a vision, and the vision, for starters, he sees four horns. This is not like trumpets. It's not that kind of horn. These are horns like an animal horn, and that's a common symbol in ancient times. It's a common symbol of power. It's like, it's the, it's the symbol of power on an animal. It, their, their horns are what you're immediately drawn to if you look at an animal. It's the power of symbol of the animal. So it's the, it's the uh, symbol of power, excuse me. So it's also the symbol of power of the nations. There are four horns. Commonly that represents the four corners of the earth. So this is representing the power of the nations that are surrounding them, that have hurt them. So what is he actually seeing? He might be just literally seeing four horns that have like been animated and have some kind of like life. That might be just kind of this weird picture he's seeing or it might be like attached to an animal of some kind. But either way, he's seeing four horns representing the, the enemies that are surrounding them that have brought so much hurt and destruction into their life. Then he says he sees four craftsmen that approach. Now, what kind of craftsmen are we talking about here? Like, do they do like arts and crafts? Like, what are we talking about, these kind of craftsmen? That's not the kind of craftsmen. It's specifically, they, their craft is war. Warcraft. So, I want you to envision four warriors that are approaching these horns. But these warriors, you need to see as like battle-hardened, skilled, elite. These people are trained to kill and to destroy. These are like war champions that are approaching these horns, okay? And they're gonna do two things. 
these war craftsmen. They're going to do two things. The first thing is they're there to terrify the enemies, and then they're going to cast them down. So the horns that represent the, the enemies of Israel are terrified at the sight of these craftsmen. When they see them coming in all of their armor, they're like, oh boy, this, this is going to be trouble. And they're terrified. Now, ancient armies commonly would not only plan their siege tactics, but part of their tactics were often to terrorize who they were about to attack. And they would use various ways to, to just dishearten their, their enemies to terrorize them so that when they charged, they were more likely to flee, okay? Let me give you one example. In fact, the guys from Refine will remember this. This came up uh, over the weekend. There is a particular type of Viking warrior called the berserker. It's where we get our term berserk from. And when these Viking warriors on their ships would come to land on some kind of enemy territory, the Vikings that would offload first were often these berserkers. And there are these warriors that will have on the boat, or before they even got on the boat, they would have ingested a hallucinogenic mushroom that would just stir them up to this like crazed state of absolute aggressive rage. So they would get out of their boats. They would just be like growling and roaring. They were, there were ancient accounts where they would just be biting their own shields. I mean, they were just absolutely just slashing and hacking at anything that came in front of them, friend or foe. I mean, these are like more animal than men. In fact, the other thing that these mushrooms would do inside these berserkers is that they would feel no pain because they were so hopped up on these mushrooms. And so sometimes they would even be cutting themselves as they're walking into battle. Now imagine you are the, the enemies and this is like the front of the battle. You've got all the Viking warriors behind them, but the first ones coming are these men that are more animal than human. In fact, many of them wouldn't wear, these berserkers wouldn't wear armor. They would wear wolf skins to kind of perpetuate this persona of more animal than man. And you see these just crazed animal beastly humans walking in, ready to slash at anything that steps in front of them. The idea was that by the time the rest of the Viking warriors got there, the enemy is already fleeing. I want you to get that kind of image in your brain when it says four craftsmen approach. These are men skilled in warcraft that as they're approaching God's enemies, just the sight of them is terrorizing them. These are elite skilled warriors, and who has sent them? God. He is bringing them to cut down the enemies of God. Hold that thought. I want you to see this next vision. Verse one of chapter two. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, 
to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. Now watch what he says here. Watch this closely. And I will be to her a wall of what? Fire. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. I want to pause here briefly. We're going to keep going, but here's the image. He says, I am going to dwell in Jerusalem, God says. And the vision is of a man with a measuring line. He says, try, in other words, try and measure Jerusalem if you can. It is going to so flourish because I am there presently dwelling. It's going to so flourish that you're not going to possibly be able to get walls around it. I'm, I am going to cause Jerusalem to flourish because I'm going to dwell in its midst. And then he says this. This is powerful. But I am going to be, I will be the wall of fire all around it. I will be the protection all around it. So you've got these four horns representing the enemies that are surrounding Israel. And he says, but I'm going to dwell in their midst and I am going to surround Israel with a wall of fire. See this picture? All right, look what happens next. Verse six. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he, watch this, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. This is powerful words here. First, he reiterates again, I am choosing Jerusalem. I'm going to dwell in Jerusalem. You are going to flourish. The first, there's an encouragement there to God's people that live in God's city in Jerusalem. But there's something else in here. Did you notice? He says, and if you live in Babylon, run for your life. If you're smart, you'll run to Mount Zion. You'll run to Jerusalem. And there will be a day when people from all nations are coming to join what God is doing among his people. 
He says, but I am about to shake my hand over you, Babylon, and I am going to turn you into plunder. And he says why. He says, because Jerusalem, the one who touches you, touches the apple of my eye. Powerful words. That's a Hebrew idiom that we also understand in English. He says, anyone who touches you, touches the apple of my eye. Now, uh, my wife, Rebecca, and I, we are any day now, any minute, um, we are going to be given uh, another child. Um, Rebecca's pregnant. Thank you. Um, in fact, she may be on the way to the hospital right now, okay? And if someone comes out here and gets me, I'm leaving you guys, okay? I just want you to know ahead of time, all right? So any day, we are going to be uh, gifted uh, baby number three, and um, it'll be another daughter. We have, uh, our oldest is a daughter. We have a son, and I will very shortly be the father of two daughters, which has affected how I have trained my son. My son somehow is actually part berserker Viking. I don't know how that happened, okay? Maybe found some mushrooms in the backyard. I don't know. I didn't give them to him, okay? But what I have shared with my three-year-old son, I've said, buddy, it's up to you. You've got to help daddy. We've got to protect mommy. You have an older sister. Now you're going to have a younger sister, and you're going to have to help me protect them. And he says, I'm on it, dad. <laughs> and then we beat our chest like Tarzan a little bit, okay? And the reason is because there's something about a father of a daughter, Right? Our daughters, men, if you have a daughter, she is the apple of your eye. And if anyone messes with your daughter, there is wrath. Let me paint the picture of what's describing. And I'm, I'm saying this standing over here on this side of the stage near our young men so that they understand this, okay? Here's the thing that this passage is saying about how a father views a daughter, the apple of his eye. But I want you to picture what this is saying because I want you to imagine the scenario. Imagine a father who has unlimited power and on top of that has unchecked power. So imagine if someone messes with your daughter and you're not only leveraging all of the power that you have, channeling it into an expression of wrath, but there is no limit to your power. It is limitless. You have everything at your resources to, to do and to accomplish and to exact justice to the fullest degree that you desire. You have unlimited power and it's unchecked. In other words, imagine you can unleash a fury of wrath to the degree that there will be no consequences for your action. You will not be held accountable in a court of law. You will not be put in prison. You are, it is not only unlimited, it is unchecked. I want you to imagine that scenario where that person's daughter is harmed. Because that's describing God. Unlimited power wields the universes in his hand. 
and it's unchecked. There, there is, he is the law, invented the idea of the law. No one holds God accountable. He says, you mess with my people, you're messing with the apple of my eye, and that's why this passage builds to the crescendo of verse 13, and I, wanna, I wanted to, to stop before we got there because verse 13 is chilling. Here's what it says. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Did you catch that? It says, let every living thing in the universe pause in stunned silence. Let every thing that dares breathe be dumbfounded. Because God is lifting himself off of his throne and is heading into action. Let the most ferocious lion that stalks about on planet earth shrink back and whimper back to its den. Let the most fearsome bloodthirsty bear cower in its cave. Let the greatest, most terrifying armies the world has ever seen step back slowly and quietly in a retreat hoping that almighty God did not see them because he is putting on his armor, suiting up to go into battle. Let all the universe pause in stunned silence as God takes up the cause of justice. Part of what challenges us, church, when it comes to understanding these moments in our lives that feels like there's a vacuum of justice, We've been mistreated and someone's not being held accountable. There's something we don't deeply enough understand about God. It is how deeply and furiously he will uphold justice. You say, you know what, it's that side of, of God it's the wrathful side, it's, you know, it's this side of God that makes me uncomfortable. It should not make you uncomfortable. It should make you stunned, awestruck, maybe terrified. What this says, and our first reaction should be this, what this says is let all flesh be silent our first reaction should be, what have I done? Because every single one of us has at some point perpetrated injustice against someone else and wounded them. No one escapes. And until we understand this side of God, we don't know how to fight these battles we have against our enemies. 
I want you to see what it says on, on a subject like this. We really just need to absorb and be drenched in scripture. I want to jump um, ahead actually into Zechariah chapter 9 later in the same book. Zechariah chapter 9. I want to read this to you. I want you to see what God says to enemies. Hear this side of God. This is what it says. A prophecy, the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest on Damascus for the eyes of all peoples and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord and on Hamath too, which borders on it and on Tyre and Sidon. Though they are very skillful, Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea. And she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony. And Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king. And Ashkelon will be destroyed. A foreign people will occupy Ashdod. And I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth, and those who left are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah. And Ekron will be like the Jebusites. And I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch." God does not tolerate those who attack his people or those who inflict injustice and oppress others. Our first reaction is us ourselves to be silent before God. You say, okay, but as a Christian, as a child of God, I mean, how, how am I supposed to understand. I mean, he is a God of grace and mercy. Like, how do I understand this? Yes, I'm not perfect. I've done things. I know I've hurt people, but how do I understand this? Let me read you the next verse in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know, the Sunday before Easter, next Sunday is Easter, the Sunday before Easter, this Sunday is commonly called Palm Sunday. And it's because we remember what took place the Sunday before Jesus was crucified died and rose again. What happened on that day is Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. Jesus asked for a colt, a small donkey. He sat on the donkey and rode into Jerusalem. He came up to Mount Zion. And people celebrated like he was a victorious, conquering king. They had palm branches that they laid down. They took off their coats and put them down and they were singing and praising as he's walking in and it's this powerful symbol both of victory as it says there he's coming into the city like he's victorious but also a symbol of humility. I don't know what, how you've seen this 
scene depicted before, but it wasn't on a regular donkey. It was on a donkey's colt. His feet were probably touching the ground. It's a symbol of humility, both victory and humility. As he's riding in on this donkey, one account in the gospel says he's weeping. Why? Because by, even though today the crowds are praising him, Hosanna, blessed is he who's coming in the name of the Lord. They're praising him as a king who's returned like a conqueror. By the end of the week, the crowds will be saying, crucify him. And they'll take him like a criminal and they'll whip him within an inch of his life, drag him back out of the city, nail him to a cross, and they will look and they will mock and ridicule the maimed, bloodied figure hanging on a cross, and there Jesus will die. But on the third day, rise again. What is this picture here? Do you realize this moment when he's entering into Jerusalem, it's not just the fulfillment of Zechariah 9, it's also the fulfillment of Zechariah 2 that we also read. God himself is dwelling, is coming and dwelling in Jerusalem. Jesus, the mystery of Jesus Christ is that he's God in the flesh. He's the God man, fully God, fully man. He is God visiting his people, but the way that his visit will make them flourish is unbelievable. On the cross, he will absorb all of the wrath, all of the punishment, all of the fury for all of the injustices we have inflicted. The only way he can be just God and express mercy and grace to you is your punishment has to be served by someone else. And he upholds justice by taking it on himself as Jesus Christ so that you can be washed clean. So we look at this passage and it's saying a lot of things about justice, but what do we learn here? There's a couple things. I want you to take out your journal and I want you to write a couple things down and there are four things that this passage teaches us that I want to, to remind you of. Here's the first one. The first one is this. God is the inventor of justice. The only reason you feel that gnawing vacuum of injustice in your life, the only reason that you have the impulse to say, God, when are you going to call them to account? When are they going to reap the consequences of what they've done? The only reason you even have that impulse is that you reflect God, a God of justice. He invented it. He is more concerned about justice than you are. It's his Second thing, God invented justice. Secondly, God will uphold justice. He being a God of justice, he cannot stand injustice. And one way or another, he will uphold justice. That then brings us to the third thing, which is something we should make us fall silent at the realization Thirdly, he invented justice, he upholds justice. We then must face his justice personally for the things that we have done. And what we learn from this 
is that God took the just punishment we deserve for us. And so that brings us to the final point that we've got to remember that this passage helps us understand. God invented justice. God upholds justice. We must face his justice. And lastly, we must leave justice up to God. You say, yeah, but what about those people? It seems like they're, you know, I'm in pain and I'm in agony and I'm in brokenness. I mean, look at the pain that they've leveraged against me. And then they're out and they're at ease. I mean, how is that supposed to work? I mean, it seems like they're thriving. How is that supposed to to work? Listen to what the scripture says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 48. It says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There isn't peace. They're not living in peace. It says it again in, in chapter 57. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. How does this work? The cross shows us what sin does. You want to know the impacts of sin? Look at that maimed figure on the cross and realize this important truth. The person who has wounded and hurt you, the sin in their hearts that was used to hurt and wound you is the same sin that's destroying them. I don't care if they look like they're thriving. I don't care if they look like they're at peace. Look at the cross. That is what sin does. It maims, hurts, destroys, pollutes, and poisons. So the greed that led that person to cheat you is the same greed that's wreaking havoc on them inside, leaving them no matter how much they get in, they are just ravaged with discontentment, never satisfied with what they have, and the gnawing of jealousy, envy, and covetousness. There is no peace for the wicked. The same self-centeredness, self-absorption, selfishness that led that person to hurt and betray you is the same selfishness, self-preservation that is polluting and poisoning all of their relationships, leaving them alone. I don't care what they look like. It doesn't matter if they look like they're thriving, look like they're at ease, look like they're at peace. That sin is destroying them. So what is our reaction? I want to close with this verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Christian, this is how we fight this battle against our enemies. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Some of you are here and when you think about enemies, 
There's a friend. Their name is coming up into your mind and you say, man, every time I hear this person's name, every time I see a picture of them, every time I see a social media post, every time I think of this person, my gut turns. I can remember all of the things that they did against me. God is saying, leave justice to me. He's saying, you are the apple of my eye. I have unlimited and unchecked power. How about you leave it to me? He's saying, you who have also been an unfaithful friend at times, have received so much grace, leave justice to God. Scoop it up, hand it to God, and you show to them what I showed to you. You too, God is saying, were once my enemy, and I showed love to you. You show love to them. Let me worry about the justice. I care more about it, and I can do more about it. Some of you are saying, you don't understand the family member that hurt me, the ex-spouse that continues to hurt me, and it seems like they're living, like they've got it all together, they're at ease, they're thriving. And he's saying, man, just release it. You're in chains and in bondage, feeling like you've got enemies all surrounded you, but no, I am a wall of fire protecting you. Return to me, release to me all of that bitterness and unforgiveness. Just entrust justice to me. You say, you don't understand that that other company that hurt my company, that rival, that coworker, that neighbor, that person that continues to hurt me, and I feel this gnawing vacuum of justice. He's saying, today, can you trust that I can handle justice. Release it into my hands. I want to give you a moment today. We're going to take a moment of reflection. And one of two things you can do is we just take a quiet moment of prayer. I challenge you, please, just release this to God. Forgive him. And trust God with justice. Release that bitterness with him quietly. And find yourself freed from the shackles of bitterness and pain. Some of you, the other step for you is to realize all that God has done to absorb your wrath. And today, you might say, how do I access that? And today's the day for you to put your faith in Jesus. And in this quiet moment of reflection, it's your chance to say, God, thank you for what you did. I believe it. I accept that as my salvation. Let me pray over you as we begin this time of reflection, whether you're at the pilot campus, whether you're watching online, whether you're here, just bow your heads and close your eyes. Let me pray over you as we enter in this time of reflection. Lord Jesus, we were once your enemies and you now call us your friends because of your unbelievable grace and mercy absorbing our, the cost of our injustices. But at the same time, God, we're asking you for justice and we hand justice over to you. It's your business. You care more about it. You can do more about it. We hand it to you. I pray, Lord, that a spirit of freedom and surrender and forgiveness would sweep through our church, that we would find relief as we release those people today. Transform us, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.